You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into Questions for Corbett, that monthly podcast series where you send in the questions and I provide some answers. And as always, there are many, many, many ways to get your questions in, perhaps most notably for Corbett Report members. Please log into the website and leave your question in the comment section of this edition of QFC on CorbettReport.com. If you are at the website and you're not a member, you can always use the contact form to email me, or you can record yourself leaving a speaker pipe message, and I will play the audio of that message here on the podcast, as I will with a couple of messages later on here. Or you can tweet me uh, at Corbett Report using the hashtag QFC so I can find your question. You can uh, put this on any kind of audio or video sharing platform, SoundCloud, Vimeo, YouTube, what, what have you. Just send me the link once it's up so I know that it's there. However else you try to get this to me, please do so, but Keep in mind that I can't answer all of the questions that come in because there really are too many. But having said that, the less that I talk jibber-jabber here at the beginning, the more of these questions we can actually get to. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. First, I want to highlight the excellent work of some of the people in the comment section of the last edition of QFC, number 23, where what I have always envisioned for this series is coming true. It has never been meant to be me on a pedestal as the guru providing the answers to all of you. I think this is a collaborative learning process, so I'm glad for the participation of other people in this collaborative learning process on that note, we had an interesting comment in uh, from Nick who wrote about James Risen and why no, mo- more people aren't skeptical of his work. Of course, James Risen is the eminent, the, the preeminent inside source leaker of information from the NSA and about the NSA's plans and has written a lot of important articles and books on the subject of the NSA and what it knows and what it doesn't know, etc. Well, I think it is absolutely in our best interest to be skeptical of any sort of inside information coming from behind the iron curtain of the intelligence community. So we should absolutely have a skeptical eye on people like Ryzen, what they're telling us and what they're not telling us, or even the way that they're telling us, which can frame the narrative in a way that's palatable to the powers that shouldn't be. So absolutely, we should uh, have a skeptical eye on people like that. Although I would say we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and there have been a lot of babies in James Ryzen's work over the years. So it is important, though, of course, to keep in mind the way that information is coming to us and how it's being framed and delivered. Um, We also had a question in from Bub Romer asking why I didn't talk about JFK and the Federal Reserve and Executive Order 11110, and a response from Oscar Forty, who pointed out that I have talked about JFK and the Federal Reserve many times on the podcast, perhaps most notably back in the more Patriot Mythology episode of the podcast, where I discussed this executive order that JFK issued and how, contrary to the myth that's commonly pervaded in the alternative media, that executive order was not to end the Federal Reserve or to to start the issuance of debt-free money through silver certificates. It was to end the practice of the issuance of the silver certificates. It gave the power to end that program to the Treasury Secretary, which was then used after the next regularly scheduled uh, issuance in 1964, and there were no more ever again. It wasn't because JFK was trying to fight the Fed and they killed him and and therefore they could continue. It was because he specifically handed the power to the Treasury Secretary to end the issuance of those silver certificates. I have talked about this several times now on the podcast and linked several times to the G. Edward Griffin article where he goes into great detail about the specifics of Executive Order 11110, which is worth reading because it does have the actual specifics, no vague talk about things about this executive order, the actual uh, lines from the executive order itself. So I'll put that in the show notes once again, and this myth that continues to not die will probably still not die. People will still talk about JFK trying to end the Fed, even though it's a load of baloney. Um, Also, we had a question in from Benny B talking about how we derail this virtual false flag slash iPatriot Act narrative that's coming into shape in the 21st century and that we've been documenting in exhaustive detail at New World next week for years now. And uh, we had a reply from Algorithm of Consciousness directing him to episode 262 of the podcast where I talked about pirate internet and the possibility of constructing an internet around and away from and apart from the NSA-infested internet that we are currently using, the, 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 the ARPANET, that we are currently using to communicate with each other. So, again, great to see some collaborative learning going on and people sharing ideas, uh, not just 
expecting me to be the guru, I suppose. But having said that, let me guru a little bit on some issue, on some questions. Uh, first of all, we'll go to the mailbag. We have an email in from Robert who writes, Hi, James. An interesting connection occurred to me. What if Guantanamo is a training and technique refining school? Yes, very good question, Robert. And your intuitions are very good on this one because, in fact, Guantanamo is a training and technique refinement school. Uh, I say that advisedly because back in interview 480, I talked to Dr. Jeffrey Katz, who at that time was talking about a article that he had recently written called Recently Released Autopsy Reports Hiding Guantanamo Suicides Mystery. And in that article, uh, is uh, that's a follow-up to an article that he had written earlier, Guantanamo Detainee Files Hint at Psychological Research. So yes, Guantanamo was and presumably still is being used for uh, psychological research, for torture technique refinement. I think we understand how that uh, how that works. And for people who don't, you can go and read those articles from Dr. Jeffrey Kay and listen to my interview with him. Um, let's move along to a tweet from at iNarel. Uh, James, what kind of microphone do you use? I use an Audio-Technica 2020 USB microphone, and for those watching on YouTube or on my website, there it is. Uh, it's a great little microphone for what it is. It's a condenser uh, microphone and studio condenser quality, but not that expensive. Uh, it runs you about 140 bucks. You could probably find it for cheaper on eBay if you tried. So. For my money, it's worth it. I have I've had this one for I think six years now or something like that, and uh, never had to tinker with it. Never had any problems with it whatsoever. So, absolutely, uh, I think it's a good little podcasting mic, especially if you're getting into this for more than just uh, a few episodes. If you're more than than just dabbling your toe, I think this is the type of microphone that's good for people who do have technical questions like that. What microphone do you use? What camera do you use? What software do you use? I've talked about this a couple of times in the past. Corbett Report Radio number 149, How to Create the Corbett Report, and uh, episode 282 of the, or sorry, 283 of the podcast proper, Solutions, Make Your Own Media. And uh, both of those have a lot of information about things like what kind of microphone I use. Uh, moving along, another email in from Sophia. I am a student, and my question is, to what extent have Canadians abandoned the principles and liberties of the Constitution? Can you give me examples of where the Constitution on federal decision, decisions has been neglected? What must Canadians do to regain our rights in the Constitution and preserve existing ones? Can you publish an article on this issue and list all historical cases where the Canadian government broke its own rules? Thank you. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to write your paper for you, but <laughs> extra points uh, for your ingenuity in trying to get that uh, written for you. But I will point you to many, many different sources that I've, uh, I've put together in the past on related subjects to this question. For example, uh, I had a report on Police State Canada from the McDonald Commission to the G20 talking about various abuses of the police forces in Canada, including, of course, the scandals of the RCMP in the 70s, which led to the creation of CSIS in the 80s. And uh, I did a report on End of Nations, Canada, the U.S., and the security perimeter, talking about the gradual erosion of the concept of Canada as an independent nation itself. Uh, I've talked about the Toronto G20 specifically and the abuses and really derogation of the uh, and abandonment of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that took place there on a few occasions, including in an interview with Nick Wright, who was suing the uh, G20 police uh, for their role in cracking down on Toronto uh, pro protesters. And also uh, Dan Dix, who put together Into the Fire, which is a documentary film completely available for free online and highly worth your attention on the subject of the uh, the abuses that took place at the Toronto G20 specifically. I did a report on guilty until proven innocent, the tort of defamation, looking quite specifically at the laws in Canada and how they can be abused. Uh, and Canada is a tin pot dictatorship is a recent video I put together on some interesting rulings coming along trying to suppress free speech in Canada. And finally, the terrorists behind Canada's anti-terror law is a international forecaster editorial that I penned just a couple months ago on the question of Bill C-51, how and why it came together, and what agenda it is really serving in destroying any uh, some of the fundamental core tenets of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, like any other constitution, is just words on a page that can and will be ignored by the powers that shouldn't be 
when it suits their purposes. So again, lots of different sources in there, lots of different uh, pieces of that puzzle for you to use to piece together your own puzzle, uh, your own paper on this subject. So all of those links will be in the show notes for this edition of Questions from Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Next question, we had a question in from Alex. Money is normally loaned into existence as debt plus interest. What changes now that money is still loaned into existence as debt but minus interest? Does this not fundamentally change everything? All right, to bring everyone up uh, to speed and on the same page, we're talking about a couple of different things. Uh, Last year, the ECB uh, decided to take their deposit facility rate negative. And then earlier this year, Swiss bonds, 10-year bonds, actually started trading at a negative interest rate. So this is Twilight Zone. There are some very weird things going on. But what does it actually mean? On the In the ECB example from June of last year, it basically means that the ECB is asking banks to pay money to park their funds at the ECB. And so this, of course, incentivizes banks to trade excess, uh, to lend ex- excess reserves to each other and things and things of that nature. It's, it's part of the monetary engineering that the central banks are admittedly there to do. And then in the uh, Swiss case, it's basically um, people are willing to, in, in fact, pay money to lend the Swiss government uh, for the promise of getting less money in the future because deflation basically means that uh, there will be... Uh, e- e- uh, there, there, people are very worried about the way that deflation is taking the, the, the value of the money itself, so they're willing to actually pay to lend the Swiss government money, which, of course, ultimately incentivizes people to try to find uh, actual interest rates that pay anything in equities markets, where, of course, we've seen the bubble that has been blown and blown and blown and blown and blown for the last several years and is popping as we currently speak. Well, the last couple of days of trading last week was a huge drop and could be the beginning of a very interesting fall. All right, so is this completely Looney Tunes? Well, I mean, ultimately it comes back like everything else to supply and demand. Are people willing to pay, are banks in this case, or or investors in 10-year bonds willing to pay a premium for government-secured uh, debt or for de- uh, keeping deposits at the European Central Bank? And, you know, again, that comes down to a question of, well, is it worth it to do that? Or should I, you know, lend these excess deposits or blah, blah, blah. So, Ultimately, there is a supply and demand here, and it is just a question of incentivizing certain behaviors. So I guess we can see it's not complete, uh, unthinkable. It's not unimaginable how this works. It's just kind of strange that it's happening and shows that there are some severe deformities in the market itself and also shows that there's really no such thing as a free market in a central bank system because ultimately it controls everything, including such things as how much uh, money banks uh, get paid or pay for the privilege of parking their excess deposits, which, of course, they do require a certain reserve ratio in order to lend at all. So lots to think about. But I think perhaps the more interesting question here, the underlying question is, well, if this actually starts to affect consumer deposits and consumer deposit rate goes negative and consumers at private banks are paying to put their uh, their their funds in deposit, that would be very interesting. But surely people would just take their cash out of the bank. They'd just take cash and stuff it under the mattress rather than letting the banks skim a little bit off the top uh, every month because of a negative interest rate, right? Well, they would if they were allowed to do so. And of course, now, right now, as negative interest rates start to appear on the horizon, we start to see all of this talk about the war on cash. Uh, Cashless society is coming. They are engineering it. There are all these rules going in uh, in France, in Italy, elsewhere, laws against using cash in large transactions. And there are more and more bankers coming out to talk about, you know, cash is an outdated idea and we should get rid of it. So very interesting that this is coming together right at this moment. Uh, In the risk of reinventing the wheel, I don't want to talk about something that's been talked about by others in greater length and in greater detail, so I will point you to episode 465 of The Tom Woods Show, where Tom Woods had a guest on talking specifically about this war on cash and how negative interest rates plays into all of this. Um, The negative interest rates are um, one 
tool that the uh, central authorities have to influence us to spend the money we have rather than save it and, and potentially invest it in, in productive resources. In other words, that's our, that's our options with cash, right? We can either save it to invest it in something productive or we can spend it. So with negative interest rates, that means that it costs you money to keep cash in your bank. And um, there are uh, several versions of uh, negative interest rates. One is that the bank simply charges you a fee for, for, for holding cash. In other words, instead of paying you a 2% interest that you would earn, it, it takes a 2% fee away from you every month. Um, and um, this puts pressure on anybody with cash to just go ahead and spend it now. And that's what the authorities want because they fear a, a, a recession, which could lead to deflation and um, basically the end of their credit bubble. So they want everybody with any kind of cash to spend it now, but they want us to spend it through official channels where it can be taxed. And so that's the other part of, of pushing you into the banking system is that then every transaction that you um, conduct will be um, visible to them and it also uh, can be taxed. As always, you can follow the link in the show notes directly to that episode of The Tom Woods Show. Well worth your time to listen as they get even more into negative interest rates and what that means for the economy. But we'll leave that clip there and move along to the next question. This time, a comment coming in at the Questions for Corbett post on CorbettReport.com from last month from Corbett Report member Mamik, who writes, If we can trade with anyone anywhere in the world, how do we avoid productivity issues? Let's take a domain that has very high strategic implications and tremendous productivity variations, growing food. Some parts of the globe have high agricultural productivity. Some have tough weather conditions. Thus, if I live in a tough weather place, people thousands of miles away will be able to supply cheaper and better food than my neighbor, which makes me dependent on people thousands of miles from me for my essential need of feeding my family. This is a very big strategic problem of independence. This has been addressed with borders and taxes in the past. How do we do in a globalized P2P economy? Not theoretically, practically. Example, not overlooking the basic instinct of human beings to buy as cheap as possible and not everyone will can grow their own food, especially in tough weather in urban areas. All right, Mamik, thank you for the question. This is an important question dealing with the topic of peer-to-peer -peer economy and the ways that people are finding to circumvent the traditional limitations and restrictions that have been placed on trade by nation-states in the past, which we've talked about at great length here at the Corbett Report in recent months, especially, of course, in our previous podcast episode on the P2P economy. If you haven't seen that, I suggest you check it out. I think the question here is interesting, but I don't think fundamentally this is really a problem of the idea that you can now transact more freely than ever before with people anywhere around the world, I think that this is actually freeing up the economy. I don't see how the problem of some areas not being agriculturally as productive of others is solved by taxes and tariffs and restraints on trade. I don't think that solves the problem in any way. I think the underlying issue here is if you are freely available to trade with anyone anywhere in the world, then yes, you might be able to source products more cheaply from someone who lives in a more fertile area that might be further away from you. The question is, are you willing to put a premium on goods produced locally? Are you willing to sacrifice certain things that you may not be able to get in, in your local area because you want to stay local and, and source from local people that you can look in the eye and shake their hands? Some people will answer yes. Some people will answer no. I'm not here trying to tell people how to live their life and uh, whether they should or should not. Um, spend that premium price to buy those products that are imported from halfway around the globe, I think that's up to them to make that decision. And uh, far be it from me or anyone else to tell two people how they can or cannot interact on this planet. It also raises the question of, if you are living in a Arctic tundra or a desert area, maybe, maybe there are incentives for you not to live in that area. And again, maybe you want to pay the premiums that come with living in an area that where food can't be grown or things of that nature. But again, that's up to the individual involved and uh, the choices that they make. Again, it's all about people having the free choice and the free association to live where they want. And if you're going to pay the premiums to live where you want to live and live the lifestyle you want to live, again, that's up to you. Uh, if you can't afford to, then maybe you will be incentivized to live elsewhere. And again, that's just how that's just how life works. And I don't think that putting taxes or tariffs or things of that nature is going to solve anything. It's just going to make it more expensive to buy other things and and I, I, that doesn't actually solve anything. 
all it does is put uh, restraints on the types of trades that, that are possible. So again, I don't see any real conflict here. I don't see any real problem. I mean, again, there are certain places on the planet where it may be less amenable for people who are looking to source things locally, but that's not a fault that could be corrected by any sort of government. All right, uh, let's move on to an interesting question in from Matt, who writes... Just wanted to ask you your thoughts on the history of the anarchist cookbook. I'm not satisfied with the official story. As a child of the 80s, I vividly remember rumors of this book's existence in grade school. Later on, my uncle became a rager in the 101st Airborne, and this book was widely circulated among special operations personnel. He still has to copy to this he still has his copy to this day. The story of the genesis of this book is that a 19-year-old rebel with a cause wrote it in protest of the Vietnam War. Later in the 80s, the book supposedly took on a life of its own via the BBS networks. It then became widely distributed, only with much more destructive recipes under the title Anarchist Cookbook 5. V. All of this just smacks of COINTELPRO to me. While trying to do my own research on the subject, I watched the Vice episode on the Anarchist Cookbook. Needless to say, after several explosions and an audio track that featured the lyrics, I like weapons for killing stuff, hand grenades are good for blowing things up, I had to turn it off. I've always wondered about Vice. Regardless, it's obvious that there is a dangerous connection implicitly being drawn between anarchy and violence. As someone who philosophically leans towards natural law, and thus real anarchy slash minarchy, my first instinct is not to blow things up, but rather to learn German so that I can read some of the classical textbooks on economic thought. The connection between anarchy and violence is obviously a logical fallacy, and it is offensive to me. To anyone in the know, anarchy slash minarchy is rooted in natural law, which holds the non-aggression principle as the highest expression of natural harmony. It is thus quite literally the least violent of all political philosophies ever, so I am interested to hear your thoughts. Do you know anything about the real history of the Anarchist Cookbook? Very interesting question, Matt. Thank you for sending that in. And I guess we can start by talking about the very problematic question of anarchy, anarchism. What is it? Is it a a singular ideology? I would venture to say it's not, and there are historical wings of anarchist ideology that were explicitly revolutionary and violent and advocated assassinations and bombings as a way of uh, making uh, the propaganda of the deed, as it was termed by certain self-proclaimed anarchist philosophers. So the idea that anarchism is founded on the non-aggression principle, well, there is a certain strain of anarchism that is, but that's not exactly the traditional philosophy of anarchism. So there's there's a lot to say about the linkages between anarchism and violence, and that's why I want to avoid the use of that word anarchism as much as possible to talk about the specific ideologies, uh, for example, voluntarism. But having said all of that, yes, I mean, it is interesting that anarchy still continues to be absolutely indelibly wedded, ironclad, cemented into place uh, in the public imagination with violence and chaos. So it's interesting that association has never been broken to this day and is being promoted and propagandized by outlets like Vice, which I share your skepticism about. Um, Well, yes. So the official story, for those who don't know, the Anarchist Cookbook was written by William Powell, who was a 19-year-old student at the time and protesting the Vietnam War and threw together a, basically, research from all open sources. Uh, I think, I don't think he claimed to have any um, hidden sources of information. It was all stuff that he researched at the library and what have you, and put together from patents and technical papers, talking about, for example, how to uh, put together homemade explosives and things of that nature. And it's interesting, yes, and so in recent years, William Powell has written uh, for example, at The Guardian, uh, I wrote The Anarchist Cookbook in 1969. Now I see its premise as flawed, etc., etc. So William Powell is the admitted avowed author of the, the text itself and is uh, very contrite about uh, and, and very remorseful about having written it. And that's the official story. And I have, when it comes to this type of story, my inclination is actually not to suspect that the author is not the author. I think that probably this did come from William Powell. The much more interesting question for me is how, when, and where, and under what circumstances 
did this get published? Because I think, yeah, there are lots of people out there that are writing things like these, young students that, you know, will have these types of proclivities. The question is, how does this get out into the mainstream culture? And that comes through business channels and publishers and people with money and influence and power. And I think those are the people that decide, oh, this will get forwarded in, in this way under this title and with this meme, and this will not. So that's where I would really want to, to if, that's where my inclination would lead me. And there are a couple of cl- cookie crumb clues along the trail that can lead us in that direction. For example, if you go to the Anarchist Cookbook FAQ, FAQ online, uh, there is a comment from William Powell where he does his usual thing. I've recently been made aware of several websites that focus on the Anarchist Cookbook. It was written during 1968 and 19th, part of 1969, soon after I graduated from high school. At the time, I was 19 years old, and the Vietnam War and the so-called countercultural movement were at their height. I was involved in the anti-war movement and attended numerous rallies and demonstrations. The book, in many respects, was a misguided product of my adolescent anger at the prospect of being drafted and sent to Vietnam to fight in a war that I did not believe in. Etc., etc. I conducted the research on my own, primarily at the New York City Public Library. Most of the contents were gleaned from military and special forces manuals, etc. Here's the interesting part. I submitted the manuscript directly to a number of publishers without the help or advice of an agent. Ultimately, it was accepted by Lyle Stewart, Inc., and was published verbatim without editing in early 1970. Contrary to what is the normal custom, the copyright for the book was taken out in the name of the publisher rather than the author. I did not appreciate the significance of this at the time, and would only come to understand it some years later when I requested that the book be taken out of print, a request that obviously was not honored. Isn't that interesting? So the author of the book suddenly had no control of it once it entered business land and became a published entity under the auspices of Lyle Stewart, Inc. So who is Lyle Stewart, Inc.? What does this have to do with anything? Well, we can get some more information about that by going to the release of uh, an extensive file of FBI documents that were released under a Freedom of Information Act request in 2011 on the Anarchist Cookbook. So this is FBI files on the Anarchist Cookbook from 1971 to 1999, available for your reading pleasure online. Link, as always, in the show notes, so you can go and read through this hefty tome of 171 pages yourself. And if you do so, you will find that, yes, the FBI had an extensive collection of files on the Anarchist Cookbook. And as you would expect from a FOIA release like this, no smoking gun of, you know, uh, let's secretly pen the, the, write this book and blame it on the anarchists, signed J. Edgar Hoover. Nothing quite of that sort. But there are some interesting little nuggets in here. Uh, For example, there are a number of people in this document that are writing into J. Edgar Hoover incensed that this book has even been allowed to be published. How in the land of the free and the home of free speech can we allow free speech to actually take place? A lot of these uh, people are essentially saying in their own confused way. And you have J. Edgar Hoover piously replying to some of these humble citizens who have written into him to talk about, um, with respect to your questions, this bureau has no control over material which appears in the mass media, etc. So the FBI is suddenly this wonderful First Amendment respecting rights, uh, rights respecting organization that only cares about what's written in the Constitution, right? <laughs> um, yeah, whatever. Uh, so there's there's that that aspect to it. But also, on the Lyle Stewart issue, there are a couple of things of note in here. Uh, for example, in one of the, uh, the internal memos that is written about uh, the, the, the files here from one FBI agent to another, they're talking about Lyle Stewart, Inc., and it mentions that, there, that he is on the security index of the New York office, which means that he had had some kind of contact with the FBI New York field office at that time, which is interesting, but perhaps not surprising, because after all, he was a known publisher of, of incendiary information. <laughs> Excuse the pun. And a little bit more of that in an internal document that was put together as kind of a briefing on the uh, anarchist cookbook for FBI agents. There's a number of, there's a lot of information that's put together about William Powell and the person who wrote the preface, but on the, the, uh, the feature of uh, Lyle Stewart specifically, it says that uh, New York files further reflect Lyle Stewart Inc. is owned and operated by Lyle Stewart, New York SI subject, and it has his NY file number from the New York field office, uh, 100-90251, uh, bureau file, BU file, 105-10439. So maybe some 
people can uh, do some FOIAs on that. But anyway, Stewart has published a newspaper, The Independent, which I believe is spelled wrong there, and has published a number of books. He has been described as extremely sympathetic to the Castro regime in Cuba and was reported to have furnished financial assistance to the defunct Fair Play for Cuba Committee and was reportedly an officer of their group in New York City in the early 1960s. He's been reported to visit Cuba. Books known that he published by, by Stuart are of the left persuasion and are sympathetic to Castro's Cuba. Hmm, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Where have I heard that? Well, anyone even glancingly familiar with the JFK case will know about the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and uh, Louis Harvey Oswald's association with that and his uh, his anti-Castro Cuban cover um, where he was in that organization with FBI and CIA plants and up to his eyeballs and in intelligence. Fascinating stuff. So I think Lyle Stewart and Lyle Stewart Inc. is uh, worthy of our attention if we're going to serious ex seriously explore how this anarchist cookbook really got unleashed on the world and uh, put out there in a mainstream mass media marketed way. Uh, since then, as you note, it's been taken up by others and uh, there's been either newer editions of this online and what have you. So it's taken on a life of its own in some ways. Uh, yes, so there's definitely a certain strategy here and a utility, I think, for organizations like the FBI, if for nothing else than to have a reason, oh, these crazy anti-war protesters, look how violent they are. The people who don't want to go and kill people in foreign countries, they're the bombers and madmen. We have to keep our eye on them, which is, I'm sure, to this day trotted out as one of the excuses why these organizations spy on anti-war groups, as they continue to do and are continually exposed for doing. So, yes, Matt, thank you for bringing this up. I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm going to leave it there again. I'll put the link to the FBI FOIA files there for you and all of these different articles and pieces of the, the cookie crumb trail. Uh, I, again, part of collaborative learning. I hope you guys will take a look at this and maybe uh, dig up some more on Lyle Stewart and his connections to this and uh, to the extent that this was allowed to happen, allowed to be published, unleashed on the world for a specific political purpose, perhaps with the machinations of various intelligence agencies behind it. Fascinating subject. All right, uh, let's move on to Dave, who writes in, I have a simple question. Let's say you had family in Canada and you were living in Japan. Well, that's true. If Canada suffered an EMP attack, what is the best thing your family can do now to remain in contact with you to tell you how they are doing once the aftermath ensued? Well, the answer to this question would be ham radio and an old microwave. <laughs> and uh, for people who want more of the details on that, I did do an entire episode of the podcast on the possibility of an EMP false flag attack, episode 254 of the podcast, talking about all of the chatter we've seen about EMP and and the, the idea of a North Korean or Iranian nuke going off, not as a, an attempt to nuke a city per se, but as an attempt to use an EMP burst to knock out the power grid on the West Coast or the East Coast or wherever. So there's a lot of things lining up towards some sort of EMP false flag attack. And who knows, EMPs, of course, could happen naturally for a lot of different reasons. So it's an interesting thing to ponder. And yes, long story short, you need some sort of Faraday cage and microwaves are a good way. If you have an old microwave kicking around, you can throw electronics in there and uh, they will not be fried in the event of an EMP burst. So as long as you have, uh, well, something like a ham radio or, or whatever electronic device, a cell phone, which wouldn't really do very good if the communications uh, equipment, all of the, the, the towers and everything are down. But Or, or you could have, uh, I guess, an AM, FM radio or something like that in case there are stations around that actually survive the attack, etc. 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 You can put electronics in there. Um, I'll throw in a couple of other links um, to Utah preppers talking about um, Faraday cages and EMP protection, and noting talking about ham radios and GRMRS and AMFM radios and other things that you should store away uh, in some type of Faraday cage. I'll throw in a link to the Modern Survival blog talking about how you can do it using uh, aluminum foil and or a metal trash can with the cardboard liner, etc. So there are different ideas for people. Uh, who are concerned about this as a possibility. Hmm, I, uh, all I can say is I don't personally take that, uh, do that. Uh, I, I think there'd be other things to worry about in the case of an EMP, a uh, real serious EMP false flag. But still, anyway, if you're interested, you can look into that. Okay, next let's turn to the SpeakPipe application where we had an audio message, uh, an audio question left by Oliver. Hi, James, this is Oliver from Germany. And I have just one question for you. 
that also might be heard as a riddle that I thought would be maybe funny but not really. So when I hear something about ISIS I always think what is the opposite of this old national chaos? So that's the question. Just the opposite of old national chaos that they are creating right now. Well, that's it. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for the playful little question there, uh, Oliver. Yes, I get the riddle. Does everyone else out there get it? What's the opposite of old national chaos? I'm sure you guys can fill in the blank. New world order, of course. Well, thank you, Oliver. Thank you for a little light twist to all of this. Not not that light when you think about it. All right, let's move on to a question via Twitter from at Twisted Politics, who writes, what vital documents were destroyed in WTC7? Very good question. And this is a question that's even, not even that controversial, really. I mean, documents were destroyed on 9-11. And if you want the mainstream version of this uh, problem and the main what the mainstream will be talking about when it comes to this question, you can look at something like the Daily Mail, which had an article back in 2011 talking about mystery of the art and records that vanished in 9-11 attacks that at least gives you an overview of the scope of what, what we're talking about here. And it does mention WTC-7 as well as some of the offices in some of the other buildings like WTC-6 and others that weren't uh, completely destroyed but uh, that had a lot of documents and artworks and other things destroyed, as well as the records of what was contained in those records, interestingly enough. Um, and it does, it does talk about, you know, some of the tenants and, and things that might have been destroyed. But again, that's the kind of mainstreamy version. Um, some more interesting things can be gleaned from some of the reporting that took place directly after the attacks, because that's when a lot of actual investigation was going on, and so a lot of things were coming out, including something from the National Law Journal on September 17th, SEC and EEOC attack delays investigations, which said, quote, Additional details emerged Friday about the effect of the collapse of Seven World Trade Center on investigations being conducted by the New York offices of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, both of which were housed in the building. The SEC has not quantified the number of active cases in which substantial files were destroyed. Reuters News Service and the Los Angeles Times published reports estimating that um, estimating them at 3,000 to 4,000. They include the agency's major inquiry into the manner in which investment banks divvied up hot shares of initial public offerings during the high-tech boom. Very interesting. And ultimately, they don't have any conclusion here in this article, because again, all of this was still being actively researched at the time, but uh, they do talk about how this is going to cause some mayhem, and uh, they quote Max Berger of New York's Bernstein, Litowitz, Berger, and Grossman as saying, ongoing investigations at the New York SEC will be dramatically affected because so much of the work is paper-intensive. This is a disaster for these cases. What was the SEC working on around that time? Oh yeah, Enron. Oh yeah, WorldCom. Yeah, no, nothing worth looking into there, right? So Again, 3,000 to 4,000 uh, cases of the SEC affected or published um, uh, case files. So, again, we don't know exactly what was contained in that, but that was the reporting that was going on at the time. In 2002, we had uh, reporting from the uh, Tech TV Vault talking about, again, WTC7, and this time talking about the U.S. Secret Service, which uh, housed more than 200 employees in WTC7 and talking about uh, the evidence that we stored at Seven World Trade in all our cases went down with the building, according to U.S. Secret Service Special Agent David Curran. We lost our network, we lost all our computers, we lost all the equipment that we use as special service agents, everything from machine guns to our shotguns to our electronic equipment that we use. So, again, interesting, but we don't really have a sense of what specific files would have been lost there, but at least an admission there were absolutely every every one of the documents that was being physically stored there was gone. Uh, we have some more from Citigroup later on in 2002. Citigroup facing subpoena in IPO probe. 
the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, frustrated by Citigroup's unwillingness to turn over information about any WorldCom executives who may have gotten shares in initial public offerings, will try to pry the information out with a subpoena. And this goes on to talk about uh, World Trade Center 7. But Citigroup says some information that the committee is seeking was destroyed in the September 11th terror attack on the World Trade Center. Salomon had offices in 7 World Trade Center, one of the buildings that collapsed in the aftermath of the attack. The bank says that backup tapes of corporate emails from September 1998 through December 2000 were stored at the building and destroyed in the attack. Oh, sorry guys, all that important information gone. Another interesting cookie crumb there. Uh, The street followed up later on in 2002 with another article, Document Chaos Isn't Sorted Out, talking about how uh, aimed at the world's financial heart, the September 11 terrorist attacks were designed to throw capitalism into chaos. In one respect, they succeeded. Millions of crucial documents were vaporized in the tragedy, and the process of sorting the losses out has been difficult and has included charges of opportunism. A Citigroup lawyer, for instance, recently told a congressional committee looking at the bank's WorldCom mess that she couldn't provide them with all the information they sought because it was destroyed in Seven World Trade. Uh, some further email records the committee has requested cannot be retrieved, etc., etc. And then talks about security lawyers for Morgan Stanley talking about records stored on computers at Five World Trade Center being destroyed, etc. So not just WTC7, but also WTC7 talking about the Securities Exchange Commission again and some of their... Uh, documents going kablooey in WTC7 along with the building itself. So again, all of that very interesting. But around 2002, that was when the reporting was happening. And since then, eh, not a lot. We get that Daily Mail whitewash. But other than that, the uh, issue of the missing records doesn't really uh, come up on the radar. Until 2009, when Aidan Monaghan filed his own uh, FBI FOIA request, or his FOIA request, uh, pertaining to records that the 9-11 Commission had uh, on SEC investigation records stored at WTC7. So specifically, trying to find out what specific documents were destroyed, were lost on that day. And he got a message back saying, after consulting with other commission staff, we did not locate or identify any records pertaining to the SEC investigation records stored at the SEC offices once located within floors 11 to 13 of World Trade Center Building 7 in New York City, New York, as of September 11, 2001, which is a lot of qualifications, which basically just means, well, we can't locate any records talking specifically in the commission archives about this issue of the missing documents. So... Uh, I don't think that really proves anything other than the fact that, you know, they they couldn't find a, or they can't admit to finding a record that specifically pertains to that, which again, there's so much wiggle, wiggle room in there that, uh, well, what are you going to do? Uh, and then with, there's a uh, follow-up in, by Kevin Ryan, the always insightful, always well-researched Kevin Ryan. From May of 2014, Donald Rumsfeld and the demolition of WTC7, talking about Donald Rumsfeld saying he had never even heard of WTC7 falling on 9-11. <laughs> yeah, anyway, and uh, and this goes into talking more about some of those missing documents and, uh, and some of the things in the debris. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no... Uh, there's we have no specific this is what was lost we know that some documents were lost it was estimated to be 3,000 to 4,000 SEC documents and then there's all the Secret Service and CIA and the Office of Emergency Management and all the other things that were stored in WTC7 specifically let alone what was stored in WTC1 and 2 let alone what was also stored in some of the other buildings that were damaged uh, 5 and 6 and yeah clearly records were lost that day, the euphemism lost, um, forever. Um, and if anyone has any specific uh, leads about specific documents that were lost, that would be great. But I think we can conclude that it probably did affect the SEC investigation of Enron and WorldCom, etc. So just like the OKC bombing uh, of the Murrah building, getting rid of some documents uh, for the Clintons, WTC7 got rid of some documents that would have probably blown up in the Bush crime family face, along with some other uh, well-connected insiders. So, again, an interesting question. Lots of different leads to follow there. I'll throw all those links, of course, in the show notes. Let's move on to Adam, who writes, James, wouldn't using gold and silver coins as money solve many financial problems that are caused by using paper money? A good question, and the answer is yes. 
some of them. And it depends on how you define or what kind of gold and silver system you're using and also what type of paper money system you're talking about as to what problems. Are we talking about fractional reserve debt-based uh, fiat paper money like what we have in most countries? Or are we talking about different types like gold certificates or what have you? And if so, what fraction of banking and blah, 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 all of the different things that go into that. Yes, there are ways that if we just were simply handing gold and silver pieces to each other, it would take care of some of the problems that we get with this funny money derivative casino economy that's been built on the back of this uh, debt-based paper money that we have uh, at the behest of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada and the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank and all these other banks. Yes, but it's not that simple, I think. I mean, for example, how would any of the people who support the corporate report support the corporate report with if all we could trade in was gold and silver pieces uh, unless they're sending it through the mail i guess and probably not a feasible system for a lot of people um again there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of different ways we interact and transact and my whole thing again has has always been continues to be i think we should have a free market of currencies in the same way we should have a free market of everything and people should be allowed to trade in whatever they want in whatever way they want and doesn't have to be just one thing at all times sure gold and silver pieces trading down at the local at the local uh, farmers market or what have you great but i don't think that should be the only thing that people ever transact in I, I think that's not feasible, and I think that's not. Uh, I think we can do better than that in a lot of cases. Anyway, it's an important question, and there's, I mean, always the question. Well, so what kind of system should we construct? I think it should be what systems should we construct? But still, people who are interested in this, as I record this, if you were watching this on Monday, the twenty fourth of August, I think there is still time to register for that uh, open course, open online course on money and society that we talked about with Jim Bendel. Uh, people can look back at that earlier interview, I believe interview 1072 on CorbettReport.com, where we talked about that open online course completely free. You can sign up for free on the website, and uh, we're exploring that together in co collaborative learning process. So that is going on as we speak. There's still time to get into it and to ask questions like this and to look into questions of how we can construct alternative monetary paradigms. Extremely important. All right, let's turn back to the comments for questions for Corbett number 23, where we had Studio 27 uh, writing, in the latest New World Next Week, which at that time was a, maybe a month ago, you two, James, uh, led with a story about Israeli involvement in the J.P. Morgan hack, and later on you had a story about the hardships in Greece. I have a question that ties the two together. In 1947, there was a vote in the UN, the United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine. It's very interesting, indeed, to look at the, those countries that voted against. Mostly, it is a laundry list of troubled places in our current world. Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Pakistan, Yemen, Egypt, Cuba, and Greece. I seem to recall that a particular financial institution had a, per, a leading role in the downfall of Greece. Goldman Sachs. Mere coincidence? Perhaps. Your thoughts, James? Well, first of all, uh, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs are not the same bank. I mean, they're all kind of the same when you get to the big, big boys. But so we're talking about different banks there. But l let's see how these pieces connect up. I mean, are we insinuating that uh, that nations that have voted in favor of Palestine historically at, say, the UN General Assembly tend to be the nations that are targeted by the US State Department and the banksters and all of this and the US real Israel lobby and, and all of this are, are the targets for a lot of this terror and war on terror propaganda and all of these things. Yes, clearly, absolutely. I mean, go look at it. When Whenever there's a vote on Palestine and generally speaking, yes, it's going to be the the axes of evil and their cohort that are going to be on the side of Palestine. And I don't think we should, I mean, there's clearly no coincidence there. But then, is did Goldman Sachs set up Greece for a financial fall a decade and a half ago, or thereabouts, because of a vote that took place at the UN in 1947? I think that's stretching it a bit. Um, I think that Goldman Sachs was involved in the setup for the downfall of Greece because there was a ton of money to be made for, for the vampire squid, as always. And yes, it does line up with certain geopolitical interests eventually, but I don't think it was necessarily foreseen exactly how that was going to happen and under what circumstances and under what government at that time in Greece that has nothing to do with the government in 1947 and all of those types of things. I think that's 
That's a bit complex. Uh, but yes, clearly Goldman Sachs did set up Greece, and Goldman Sachs certainly is an agent of uh, Israeli, powerful Israeli interests. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So, again, there is a lot to be said about the nuance to that, but, uh, but I applaud you for starting to put some of those pieces together. Uh, next, we have a question in from Crystal, who wrote... As a public school teacher, I often wonder what plans the global elite have for children that have been identified and are presently in the gifted and talented program. Some of these children are very bright and stand out from their general education peers. What role will they play in a new world order? Furthermore, are they, are they keeping a close eye on these kids? Could they be considered a threat to these Satanists slash occultists? I recently found out that there is a World Council for gifted for the Gifted and Talented. Uh, thank you for the question, Crystal. Um, <coughs> yes, I mean, there's clearly a lot of programs in a lot of different countries under a lot of different auspices to indoctrinate, and to identify and then indoctrinate the gifted and talented students in a number of ways. And I remember being pulled out of class in maybe fifth or sixth grade and being told, hey, why don't you join this extracurricular activity club and we're going to be starting a model United Nations and all of this kind of nonsense and garbage. And even at the time, I knew it was propaganda and a waste of my time, so I avoided it. I didn't quite understand just how insidious it is that I was pulled out and being made to feel like I was, oh, you're, you're smart enough to be in this super, super elite club and, oh, you know, you can join and join this model United Nations and all that. I mean, it is a very insidious form of propaganda, and I have no doubt that programs like that are used to identify and indoctrinate talent at a young age, and uh, to sort out the people who will go along with that type of agenda from the troublemakers who won't go along with that agenda. And I'm sure there are uh, ways that we can uh, imagine how that works, but I mean, we don't even have to speculate about this type of thing. We can look at history and for an idea of how this plays out, just look at what happened when Paul Pot took over in Cambodia, and anyone who showed any sign, even stereotypical signs of intellectualism, anyone who wore glasses or could speak a foreign language or lived in a town or had special skills, lined up, dragged into the street, shot through the head, or tortured to death. People were mutilated on iron beds and their blood and tufts of hair are still on the floor. Former civil servants, soldiers, teachers, students, actors, technicians. This was a victim photographed as he was found when the Vietnamese discovered the camp. A Gestapo called S-21 tortured and killed all those designated as sub-people. Virtually anybody who had lived in a town who had modern skills, who knew foreigners. For example, only one lawyer has been found alive. Did they also kill women and children here? All money cheating. The first time he killed the children, after the wife and after he. First they killed the children, they killed first. then the wife, the wife, then the man. Man, the man. Yes, dictators, tyrants, and would-be controllers of humanity don't tend to like people with any sort of intellectual ability or ability to resist. So, yes, a disgusting, dark chapter of human history, and unfortunately not the only one of the sort. So, thank you for that, and sorry for taking the rather dark turn there. Let's attempt to reverse uh, rather abruptly here with a very different question, this one from Tom. I've listened to your podcast for many years and would like to join your membership. However, when I went to sign up, I noticed there are three rates. One US dollar a month, three US dollars a month, and five US dollars a month. What's the difference? Uh, well, the simple answer is there is absolutely no difference whatsoever in membership rates. You can sign up for any rate you want. You can even just make a donation for a one-year membership at any rate you want whatsoever. And there is no difference at all in membership, except uh, to say that members get to log onto the website and that's the one perk. And with that login, you can leave comments, like, for example, the comments in the questions for Corbett here, uh, posts. But you can also uh, access the subscriber newsletter. And the subscriber newsletter is primarily my ed editorial for the International Forecaster, which is freely available on the internationalforecaster.com anyway. So there's really very little in the way of extra perks for members. The membership function is 
truly 100% intended for people who want to support this work and for whom it's not a financial burden to support the work. And thankfully, there are enough people out there that do this that make it possible for me to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. Uh, but your membership is always gratefully received and gratefully appreciated. So, uh, no, there's absolutely no difference. If you can barely afford uh, to scrape it together, don't bother signing up for the membership at all. I don't want money from people who can't afford it. If you can comfortably afford it, please do sign up at whatever level you feel comfortable with. And there's no difference whatsoever in membership levels. There's no special elite access that's given for people who donate more or anything of that sort. All right. Uh, finally, uh, as is our want here on Questions for Corbett, I like to turn the tables around and turn some of the questions back on the audience, because again, this is collaborative learning, so I'm learning along with you, and I'd like to get your guys' take on a couple of questions. First, a very interesting question that came in via SpeakPipe uh, from Rohan. Hello, James. Uh, much respect and greetings here from Rowan in Tokyo. A question about the Iranian oil bores and their nuclear deal. Are they still selling oil in uh, non-US dollars? If so, doesn't that mean they're the first middleweight uh, non-nuclear power to face down the petrodollar? Obviously, it didn't work out too well for Saddam Hussein or um, Colonel Gaddafi. I'd, I'd love to hear your understanding or uh, your opinion on that. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for that, Rohan. What an interesting question. Yes, people might remember the Iranian oil bursts, which has been touted for, well, a decade now at the very least. We can go back to 2006, where there were articles about the proposed Iranian oil bursts and uh, how it will accelerate the fall of the American empire, talking about how Iran was starting, uh, was talking at that time about starting an oil burst not denominated in U.S. dollars, i.e. not part of the petrodollar system, which has been the backing of the international financial system since the collapse of Bretton Woods in 1971, where oil dollars or oil uh, revenues are recycled through the U.S. dollars and into U.S. banks uh, for the purchases of U.S.-backed uh, treasuries and other USD-denominated assets to keep the U.S. dollar going and growing as on, on the back of the international oil trade. And Iran, like uh, Iraq and other countries that have ended up in the U.S. State Department's crosshairs in the past, tried or was talking about setting up an Iranian oil burst. And we can skip to 2008, where we had uh, oilprice.net. Uh, reporting Iranian oil bursts opening. The Iranian oil bursts establishing euro-based pricing of oil is set to open on February 17th, 2008 and could have devastating effects on the U.S. dollar. And currently all three major oil markets, uh, the WTI, the NYMEX, and IPE, trade barrels of oil in U.S. dollars. Consequently, any country buying oil needs dollars to pay for it. This enables the U.S. Federal Reserve to issue huge volumes of dollars to meet increasing demand for oil. In return, oil-producing nations invest dollar proceeds in U.S. Treasury bills, allowing for the current U.S. budget deficit. But this balance may become unsettled after a fourth major oil market opens this month, trading in euros, the Iranian oil bursts. So that was the state of things in early February of 2008. And lo and behold, at almost the exact same time, there was the big internet blackout in Iran, uh, as well as India, uh, just there at the beginning of February 2008, just as this oil burst was due to come online. And interestingly, that oil price article notes that the unlike other bursts, the IOB relies on a peer-to-peer -peer trading model using the internet. And the Iranian oil burst has been in the works for several years and encountered many hurdles in the way, the last of which are severed underwater internet cables, creating an internet outage throughout the Middle East days before the IOB's opening and prompting conspiracy theories. Yeah, because there's no relation there, right? Well, anyway, I'll let you look through some articles. Fourth cable cut, Iranian oil burst sabotaged, and uh, daily tech sabotage still not ruled out in undersea cable cuts. Uh, that was from later in February. And, well, at any rate, the Iranian oil burst did go ahead at some point. And in 2011, for example, we have this oilprice.com article, Iran's Kish International Oil Burst Completes First Oil Transaction. Uh, which says Iran's Kish Island International Oil Burst, which opened last month, has completed its first oil transaction after its official opening earlier this month. The IOB, the Persian Gulf region's first indigenous oil burst, sold an offering of 500,000 barrels at $105.49 
per barrel. Hmm. The purchase was made in euros and dirhams overseas accounts under the supervision of the National Iranian Oil Company. Unlike transactions on New York's NYMEX and London's ICE exchanges, which exclusively use U.S. dollars. All right. So there it was. It was open and functioning, apparently, uh, reportedly, in 2011. Now, uh, it's very difficult to find more details about how this developed since then, other than, for example, the latest thing that I can find at defenddemocracy.org from 23rd of August, so just uh, within the last 24 hours or so, petrochemical contracts to be offered in Iran's oil bursts. Iran plans to launch new petrochemical contracts on the Iranian oil bursts on Keisha Island and is trying to promote existing and planned contracts, marketing sources said on Tuesday. Uh... Market sources said on Tuesday, a forum to explain the contracts and the procedures for carrying out transactions on the exchange has been scheduled for 28th of May at the Shangri-La Hotel in Dubai. We plan to launch aromatics and polymers contracts. Uh, Plans for more contracts will be disclosed at the forum on 28th of May. Uh, So this article, although it is at this moment, on the website, it says 23rd of August uh, 2015. That is clearly not the date that this article was actually written, but there's no hint even from the URL of this article when it was actually written. I'm not sure even what year this actually was from, so I don't know. So uh, there's very little in terms of current up-to-date information, and there's nothing in terms of English language information that you can find even from the quiche uh, free trade zone or whatever it's called, government of Iran. There's just nothing that can be found uh, that I can see about the actual functioning of this oil burst at the moment, how it actually functions right now. So if there's anyone out there who's proficient in Farsi, who can navigate around the Iranian side of the internet, please do let us know about the Iranian oil burst. Is it functioning? Is it still denominated in euros? Uh, How's that working? And how is it affected by the Iran deal? Because obviously Iran has been under all these sanctions, so a very been very difficult to sell its oil for for the last few years. And now, of course, we've seen the international uh, oligarchy conglomerates descending on Iran, licking their chops, looking to get into the, the Iran PARS oil and gas field. So, obviously, I think there's going to be some selling of Iranian oil back on the global markets and probably under U.S. dollars. I'm going to assume that's the way it's going to be denominated. But again, I don't have any specifics on that. There is the actual Iran deal itself. There's a 159-page Iran deal completely available online. I've browsed through it and can't find anything specifically with regard to oil bursts, transactions, U.S. dollar denomination, euro denomination, anything of that sort. If you want to really plunge into it and uh, look at the 159 pages, I'll put the link so you can go do that yourself. Again, this is my question to you out there. Can anyone find any more up-to-date and thorough information, well-documented information, about this oil burst, if it's functioning, how it's functioning, if it's still denominated in euros, or if it's going to allow US dollar transactions. Very, very interesting question. So thank you for bringing that up. And finally, one more question for you. We have this question in from Rob. As you've probably noticed, the American mainstream media in recent years has been warming to the idea of cannabis decriminalization slash legalization, speaking of its multiple uses and benefits and so on. What do you make of this? Is there some underlying motive? Or maybe just placating the plebs while con- while conceding? All right. I, I That's a good question. To me, this is still a bit of an open question. We'll see how far this process is allowed to go in the United States and Canada and some of these other countries that are liberalizing their their uh, drug, uh, their war on drugs to the extent of maybe they're going to allow a little bit of uh, marijuana cultivation and selling like in Colorado and what have you. So we'll see how far that process extends and what kind of legal battles ultimately come up with this and and all of that. It is interesting to look at this trend because you're right. I mean, the mainstream is clearly starting to warm to it. It could be one of those things that they simply can't keep the the bottle the lid on that uh, genie bottle any longer uh, because, uh, well, the vast majority of the public at this point has tried marijuana at some point and realizes it's not the reefer madness devil drug that uh, they've been told it is for generations. And... I think the the self-evident ridiculousness of trying to enforce those types of laws uh, is seen even by a large number of 
police at this point. So I think it might be something that they just can't really keep the, the lid on any longer, and it might have the added benefit. As we've talked about on New World Next Week a few times, James uh, Pilato has talked about how this might be kind of a steam valve and, you know, let people have have their uh, have their goodies but you know while meanwhile of course the, the militarization of the police and the police state continues to advance but hey you've got your you got your pot what do you care so I, I don't know there's a lot of different aspects to this I think it's still an open question but I'm going to throw it over to you guys again question for you what do you guys think is this part of an agenda if so how is this something that's just happening as a result of societal forces uh, is this trending towards something different where is this going? I'll let you guys duke it out in the comments. And with that, poof, I'm gone. I'm going to head out for today. Thank you again for your time for this edition of Questions for Corbett. I appreciate all the questions that come in. Once again, please keep them coming in. And uh, please don't take it personally if I don't get to your question in particular. I try to get to as many questions as I can. Stay tuned for next month's edition of this series in September, obviously. And stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for more news and information coming out on a nearly daily basis. With that being said, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very soon. The Corbett Report presents Laughing at Tyrants, the latest DVD from the producer of... On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world... And... Well, today on the How To Podcast, we tell you how to foil your own terror plot. And... But that's called the death panel, uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Shut up, conspiracy theorist. Twelve of the funniest Corbett Report videos on one video DVD. Buy one for yourself or share it with a friend. Because the best way to disarm a dictator is to laugh at him. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com slash shop.